Okay, as we get started this morning, how many of you ever heard of Annie Taylor? Anyone hear of Annie Taylor? Okay, you've heard of Annie Taylor. Anyone else? Annie Edson Taylor, today's her birthday, but she's long gone, all right? She's not been here for quite a while, but she did something very significant on this day uh, over 100 years ago. In, on October 24th, 1901, she crawled into a barrel that she had designed with leather straps on it to hold her in and pillows inside to cushion her and a small boat drug her out to the middle of the river and she was the first one to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel and survive. All right? Two others had attempted before her and had not made it. Now, Annie was quite a, quite a lady. Uh, she claimed that she was in her 40s uh, when she was going over the falls and in the interviews they had afterwards with her. But checking her records found out that she was 63 the day that she went over the falls. It was a celebrator 63rd birthday. Now, how many of you want to do that on your 63rd birthday? <laughs> now, the reason I bring it up as an illustration to get started today is that as we're dealing with Ecclesiastes, we're dealing with life and its challenges. Annie had lost her husband in the Civil War. He had been killed. She had financial difficulties. She had a difficult time taking care of herself and, and uh, the family that she had left. And so she thought that maybe by doing this, by going over the falls in the barrel, it would solve all her financial difficulties. That she would become famous, that she would have all kinds of royalties flowing in from her story and all of this and that. Well, after her 15 minutes of fame and the national spotlight and a few interviews here and there, everyone forgot her. And even today, many people don't know who she is, don't know who she was, didn't know that she was the first person to survive going over Niagara Falls. She died penniless and uh, never did see her problem solved. And you know, as, as she would look back on her life, and as many people look at life, all we that we tend to see is all of the difficulties, all the issues, and all the problems. As we approach the book of Ecclesiastes, there are many who see this book as being one that dwells only with the problems, and that it does not provide any solution. But as we go through the book, we're going to find out that Solomon did provide us with direction toward the solution. But the book had a design to it that is somewhat like that which we see in evangelism. Uh, when we give the gospel to someone, the only way that we can get them to give a hearing to the gospel of Jesus Christ is that they first of all must be convinced that they have a need, right? And what the book of Ecclesiastes does is it demonstrates what the need is. And it starts it right there, and that's the foundation that we must begin with. Now, last uh, two weeks ago, actually, because last week I was in uh, Washington State, and I believe uh, you had Dave Stolarski in here talking about worship from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and some of the lessons he's learned. And uh, you know that just by listening to Dave talk about what Ecclesiastes can teach us about worship, that this book has some very positive things to say. It's not all negative. And that its lessons involve more than just how do I get along in a life that may seem unfair 
a lot of inequities and a lot of surprises that I wish wouldn't happen, you know? But rather, it teaches us how to live before God in preparation for life beyond the sun. And so as we went through this two weeks ago, we started through chapter 8. We got through the first few verses. We were talking about how to behave in front of kings. How should we behave? If you have an invitation to go to the White House, how should you behave? And some of the things we talked about here you can see, uh, don't make it an early exit. Wait to leave when you are told to leave. You know, make certain that uh, you have the person's uh, permission to leave before you leave. Don't be hasty in leaving the king's presence. Don't engage in a bad cause. Don't get involved in something that is bad. Don't get involved in something illegal. Don't argue with the ruler or with the king or with the president. Uh, when you're in their presence, we listen. We don't argue. We don't try to, to go against them unless we're asked to give uh, a reason for a disagreement. Obey the royal decrees. Obey the laws of the land. And if you have a grievance or you have a need that the ruler could address, then we ought to do that with a correct process at the proper time. And there's a time for doing things. There's a time for not doing things. We learned that from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, as we move on today, we're looking here still at this section 2 through 6, which has to do with being wise in a king's throne room. And uh, as we talk about this proper process and a proper time to address a grievance, we have to be reminded that according to verse 6 of chapter 8, there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. Now, if you have the New American Standard, it says delight. Uh, it's a word that can be translated as a matter or a, a something that needs to be dealt with, and it probably should be translated as every matter. And I've given you a little bit about that in the notes there on page 61, because uh, in the context where it speaks of being pleased, it refers to delight, but in context where it deals with time, it, ha it usually means matter, and that's probably how it should be translated here. And the whole concept here is taking us back again to what we learned in Ecclesiastes chapter three. From whose perspective are we looking at time to think of a proper time? From God's perspective, from God's perspective. Now, in, the, in verse 5, the proper time had the perspective of the king. But we've now switched. And in what we're dealing with, verse 6, is going beyond that. It's almost like it's using the first situation as a springboard to talking about the greater issue. If there's a proper time to approach the king with a grievance, then by the way, the writer is saying, with everything in life, there is a proper time. And there is a proper season. And as he talks about this, he says, even though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. Now, this mixes the two together. Uh, it's saying that if you're in the presence of the king and you have a need, even though you'd love to bring that need to the king, there's a proper procedure and time to bring it. So no matter how great your need, control yourself and wait. Because if you want that need taken care of, you need to do it in the right way. If you, if you blow it by breaching the topic and the subject or pleading for mercy or for aid at, a, at the wrong point, then it's all of no use. You'll remain in your trouble. 
And so as it moves on here and looks at the greater picture, it's still the idea of a man having trouble or a woman having trouble, disaster, problems in life. And the issue is here that it is in God's timing when those problems come, and it's in God's timing when the relief comes. And some of you are wondering right now, when in the world is this economic recession going to be over? You know, when, when can I get a job back? Uh, when can I relax a little bit? When can I decide that uh, maybe uh, things are going to turn out all right? Uh, it's in God's hands, right? It's his timing. And that's part of the lesson that is being taught here by Solomon as he moves through this. And when he talks about this trouble being heavy, it's the idea that, that, you know, when we're in the midst of our problems, it's when we have the great need and when we're more sensitive to things. And we need to be more sensitive to the one who can deliver. And it's not just a king that can deliver or help. The matter ultimately is in God's hands. Uh, you look at this, when a man's trouble is heavy upon him, the interesting thing is is some of the vocabulary that's used here in the original language is almost identical to that found in Genesis 6.5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Those words are found in verse 6 of chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. And every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 29, we had, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. The whole concept Solomon is bringing to us here is that some of our problems are due to ourselves. Right? We are responsible. Uh, it's the fallen state of the world, the fallen state that we're in, that is accountable for this. It's the reason there is trouble in the world, is that man is sinful. And so when we're thinking about our trouble being heavy upon us, we need to realize that part of the reason that trouble is there to begin with is the fall. And it's the fallen nature of man. And part of it may be our own sinfulness or our own sinful nature that has brought that situation about and has caused us to be involved in it. Let's move on to verses 7 through 9 because here we move to the next section talking about our inability to control life circumstances. And this is a, a topic that's going to occupy Solomon all the way through into chapter 9, uh, talking about all those things we do not control, all the things we wish we could control, all the things we think as we look at ourselves or at others, a person or we ourselves should be able to control, yet can be totally outside of our control. And uh, as we look at this, the first thing we note here is that we are not able to control things because we lack knowledge of what's going to happen. We lack knowledge of the future. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. No one knows that. Look at verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? <laughs> in other words, you might say, okay, when's the recession going to be over? Well, who's going to tell me? Well, you can pull up the world's economists, and they're guessing. Oh, they might have pretty good educated guesses. They might be able to chart it out and extrapolate from past recessions and take a look at it. But already... This recession has defied the patterns of all previous recessions, all right? So there's, it's all new. It's a new situation. It's a new world. There's a new economy. 
There's a new situation between countries economically. There's a new situation with the monetary standards. There's a new situation with regard to technology and information. All of those things have changed drastically. So what will it be in the future? Well, the best can take their best guess. And that's about all it is. Trust the Lord. What about the weather? Anyone got an idea what's going to happen with the weather? Are we going to be back over 100 again soon? Are we going to have a wet winter or are we going to have a dry winter? You know, everyone has their guess, right? And uh, you talk to the weathermen, you talk to those who have their training in uh, climatology and in their prediction and forecasting weather, and uh, some of them will just say, well, okay, we have a La Nina situation, but uh, who knows what it's going to bring. It could bring us a lot of moisture, it could bring us no moisture. It could bring us a cold winter, it could bring us a warm winter. Who knows? No one knows. Why? We lack that knowledge. So who has that knowledge? God and God alone, right? So the point Solomon is trying to make is he's taking every prop that we use to try to solve our own problems, and he's knocking every prop out from underneath us. And he's saying, look, so you solve a problem for today, what's that going to do for tomorrow? If you pay this bill today, what happens tomorrow when the next bill comes due? Uh, if you take care of this physical problem today, what physical problem is going to arise tomorrow? If you have a, pooth, a, a tooth pulled today, are you assured that it's not going to develop an abscess tomorrow and an infection? An infection trigger a reaction in your body which results in your death three days from now? You know, all of us know people like that, right? That have different things happen to them, we never know. You see one person one day, they're nice and healthy. The next day they got pneumonia. The next day you hear they're going to come out of the hospital. The following day you find out they're gone. We have no idea, do we? Because we have no control over those things. Now, Isaiah, in chapter 46, makes certain that we understand that God is the only one who knows the future declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my purpose from a far country truly I have spoken truly I will bring it to pass I have planned it surely I will do it right there's no controlling the future or knowing the future God alone has full control. God alone knows the future. And then Solomon gives us four examples of our lack of control over life. First of all, he says, no man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind. You ever try that? <laughs> it's hopeless, isn't it? Right? No one can restrain the wind with the wind. We have no control over climate. We have no control over the wind. Secondly, or authority over the day of death. We can't control the time of our departure from this life. We don't know when it's going to occur. Have no idea whatsoever. We may have big plans. We may uh, even be trying to get things all taken care of, putting our house in order to be prepared. And what happens? We may go later than we think, or we may go earlier than we think. We may go in the midst of preparation without preparation being completed. 
We may think we've got our lives all planned out and everything fixed so our future is all secure. Think of the man who had crops in the field and he took in all of his harvest. He says, okay, soul, now take your ease. Be at rest and enjoy the fruit of your labor. And what happened? The Lord said, tonight your soul is required of you. What happened to all his plans for retirement? What happened for, to his retirement fund? What happened to all that grain he had stored up? Well, it went to someone else. He never enjoyed it. He never had it. He had no way of determining the future. He had no control over the day of his death. God had control. Third, and there is no discharge in the time of war. A soldier can't in the middle of the battlefield, in the midst of a firefight, suddenly stand up and say, I quit, I'm going home. I'm getting out of the army, I'm getting out of the Marines, I'm leaving, I'm discharging myself. You can't do it. There's no way. You can perhaps resign fairly easily when you're not involved in war or in a battle, but in a time of war and in a battle, there's no way for a soldier to discharge himself from that duty, that responsibility. He has no control. Why? Because his life is committed and he has to give an, a full account of that duty that he has committed to fulfill. It's government issue, right. <laughs> he is government issue at that point. All right. Fourth, and the final uh, illustration, he says, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. Wicked deeds can never de uh, deliver evildoers. It, it's a very interesting phraseology that is used here because the phraseology literally says this, uh, wickedness will not deliver its masters. You see, there are those who believe that they master their wicked deeds, that they are in control, that they're using that for their benefit, for their pleasure, and for their, uh, uh, the outcomes they've determined, the results that they want. But even the wicked who believe they have mastered their wickedness and their plots and their evil deeds are really not in control because that wickedness cannot deliver them and cannot save them. Wicked deeds can never deliver evildoers. So these four things are given by Solomon as issues that demonstrate regarding the future, regarding climate, regarding death, regarding war, regarding even salvation, that all are outside of man's control. It's only God who controls. The idea here is that man has no authority. Only God has authority. He has the power. He's in control. And another example of this, as he moves on to verse 9, is he says, all this I have seen. In other words, Solomon's saying, look, I've watched everyone who's tried these things. I've watched the outcome of these things. And I have applied my mind, literally his heart, to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Notice the use of authority here. We had authority in verse 9. No authority over the wind. No authority over death. And now here, men, women who exercise authority over other men and women to the harm of the other individual. What does it tell us? We abuse our authority. What's the old saying? Power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
right? That's what happens. The authority we have, we tend as sinners to abuse because we use it not for our benefit, but too often we use it at, for the harm of others. And Solomon has watched that and he's seen it. Now, as we've looked at all of these things and have to do here, we've looked at the issue of fallen humanity. And we can see fallen humanity cannot change themselves. Fallen humanity cannot deliver themselves from any trouble. Fallen humanity cannot contravene the decrees of God, and we cannot avoid the day of our death. So in looking at that, what can we learn about leadership? Because remember, this is at the conclusion of a section dealing with kings and leaders, and this last lesson is reminding us that those in power and authority are often corrupt and can use their authority to harm individuals. Whether intentional or unintentional, great authority and power used without proper wisdom or without the control of God can result in evil. I, just yesterday, watching uh, one of the news programs, I think it was actually, uh, I don't remember if it was Fox or it was CNN was talking about the issue of uh, the problems of Europe and talking about how Europe has gotten to the state now where uh, some of the things they've tried in various programs just do not work. They just do not work. For example, unemployment benefits in, in parts of Europe used to be, I think this particular country they're talking about was Denmark. Five years benefits which encouraged people to just be on the dole for five years. And surprise, surprise, when they did the statistical analysis, guess when people got their jobs? Fifth year, right? So they cut it to four years. Guess when they got their jobs? Now they've cut it to half that, to two years. Guess when they're going to get their jobs? Right. And, of course, in our own country, we've extended the jobless benefit now so long that uh, we're seeing the same effect, that people just will wait. They'll, they'll go on the dole. They'll use the money. After all, who's going to accept a job that pays less than what you get on unemployment, right? Doesn't make any sense, does it? And so they're, they're learning from this. Uh, England is beginning to learn from their uh, health program. And they're beginning to see things. Look at France. Look at the troubles they got into things. And so when we in America start copying what Europe has done, we need to look and see, well, where are their programs in them up, you know? How'd they end up? The whole point here is that as we look at government, as we look at rulers, as we look at leaders, we can't expect them to deliver us from our problems. Number one, we can expect government normally to create more problems for us than fewer, all right? And that's the point Saul is making. Who is he talking? He is a king. He knows how this works, all right? He has been part of this. He has abused his power. He has caused trouble for others. And he has run into severe spiritual problems in his own life. And he's not a model of what you'd call true spirituality. So he's speaking from knowledge. This is what he's seeing. What can we learn about how leaders should be wise from all of this? in these first eight verses. Well, Chuck Swindoll put it this way. He said, in verse one, we learned that good leaders must have a clear mind. They must be wise. They must be wise. Secondly, 
Good leaders have a cheerful disposition. They have a beaming face. They, their wisdom illumines them, gives them a cheerful countenance. All right? A cheerful disposition. A good leader has a discreet mouth. We learn that in verses 2 through 4. He knows when to open it and when to shut it. He knows when to listen and when to speak. So he's saying let's learn the positives from this of leadership. A good leader must demonstrate keen, keen judgment. The keen judgment has to do with the proper time and the proper procedure. And the good leader demonstrates or manifests a humble spirit, according to verse 8, because instead of trying to use uh, his authority to change things he cannot change, he humbly accepts what he cannot change. All right? So here's characteristics of leadership that we can learn from this. Mike? It's really interesting you mention this. I drove around for about an hour with a guy that's a news writer for Channel 7 News I basically told him I'm, I'm not a real newsy type of guy, but I have one question for him. I said, I just don't understand. You know, it used to be north, east, west, and south. And I said, it used to be about news, but now it's about Lindsay Lohan or Paris Hilton, you know? And I asked him, how do you write this stuff? You know, I said, it's no, no slant to you. I'm sure you're an honest, decent guy. And then I shared Romans 8 with him that talks about the principalities of the world. And I told him that Basically, whether you believe in the Bible or see this, I said, um, I said, is it fair to assume that we see that there's momentum that we can't change? He says, I feel the same way. He goes, imagine how I am. I have to write this stuff, and I have to follow their guidelines. I have to tell myself it's just a job. So here you're <laughs> telling us that uh, Solomon, and even in the truth out of teaching with Ecclesiastes, recognizes that you can only kind of change the momentum so much. That's right. But I, I thought of Romans 2.14 also that talks about the, uh, the unsaved know the difference between right and wrong. That's right. The law of God's written upon their hearts. Yeah. So again, Ecclesiastes 3. Yes. He said the same thing. That's right. And so you see, we talk about how life is so uncontrollable and how we don't have control. But notice what we are accountable for. If you go back through these first eight verses... Uh, we ought to seek wisdom, number one. Number two, we ought, to then, uh, we ought to then manifest a cheerfulness. And who better than Christians to manifest cheerfulness because we have hope, right? We're not without hope. We have hope. And we understand that this world is temporary and the real hope is in the future in heaven. Now, we don't know the future. We don't know the day of our death. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in this world. But we do have confidence that our future in eternity is settled, right? And that's a confidence which the unbeliever does not have. Those who are stuck under the sun, living only under the sun, do not have any hope beyond the sun. But those who trust in God, who fear God, as uh, Solomon puts it in the book of Ecclesiastes, realize that God is in control of our immortal souls and that as believers we do have a future that is secure uh did you have a question over here lord or a statement
I love that way you put it. Yeah. Every world-class leader, regardless of who he is or she is, as Lori said, is in middle man management, right? Middle management, because only God is truly in control, all right? He's the ultimate manager of everything. Now we come to verse 10. As we come to verse 10, we come to one of those verses where we're now moving to being wise in God's throne room. Because, you know, we've talked about being wise in the king's throne room, but what about the greater king? We went, we're moving from middle management, to use Lori's phrase, now to upper management, senior management, God. If we behave one way in the earthly king's throne room, how do we behave in the heavenly king's throne room? That's what we're moving to now. Now, verse 10 says this, so then I have seen. Again, Solomon is saying, this is what I've observed. This is what I've applied my mind to. This is what I've searched out. The, I've seen the wicked buried. Those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did this. This, too, is futility. Now, what makes this verse so difficult? First of all, what is the holy place? Some say the holy place is the grave, the tomb. Others say the holy place is uh, just any place of worship, even a place of idol worship. Others would say that it's probably the temple, and that's the most likely one to use here. Remember, Solomon had built the temple. Solomon would be watching and, and would be observing the things that happened in the temple. His palace was in a situation where he overlooked the temple courtyard. He could see things going on. And so he knows that this individual that he's talking about, uh, the, the wicked, uh, would show up regularly in the holy place. He'd regularly come to the temple. He participated in the worship of his day. He went to and from with everyone. And yet, this wicked person is now dead. You see, he had no authority over the day of his death. And now, the individual is forgotten. In other words... Of what use was all the things he appeared to be doing good as he attended the temple? And there are probably some that thought, hey, this is a righteous man. Look, he's here. Every time the temple is open for worship, the individual's here. And he gives. And he offers sacrifices. And he does all the things you would expect a righteous, a good man to, to do. But he was not. Regardless of his appearance, regardless of that which he displayed outwardly, this man was wicked. All that he did to try to gain favor with God and with man by showing up in the temple regularly was of no use. Because now he's dead, he's buried, he's gone, and he has forgotten. He has forgotten. So of what use was all of that show of holiness and righteousness? And so Solomon concludes this too is futility. It's empty, it's temporary, it, uh, it, it's of no use, it's of no benefit. And as he's talking to us about this, he's uh, letting us know that uh, this just carries on the things he's been talking about. That people do not control their destiny, no matter what they try to do under the sun, what we do is not what counts. Does that remind you of any verses anywhere in the Bible? What we do is not what counts. What we do does not determine our future destiny. Daya? Okay, faith without works is dead. All right. What's, what's even better about showing the, the idea of emphasizing the faith first? Yes? I, I was actually going to go with 
first Samuel, God looks at the heart, but he looks at the outward appearance. Okay, good. God's looking at the heart, not the outward appearance. So God sees the heart of this man in the temple, regardless of what others see outwardly. Butch? Okay. All right, separation. What about Titus 3? What is it, verse 5? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. Right? What does Isaiah say in Isaiah 64? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. You see, it's not what we do. It, many people try to control their future destiny by what they do now. But what Solomon is saying, what you do now even if you attend church regularly, even if you do good works, even if you're involved in such a way that people look at you and say, oh, there's a righteous man, there's a righteous woman, that will not count. That is worthless. Butch? I'm curious about that word God. Yes. He's talking about humanity. He's talking about humanity under the sun, all those who are living. And uh, they have forgotten. They have forgotten. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because I think um, it makes a lot of questions. Obviously, I think there's saints who died in obscurity. Right. Who belong to Christ, but mm -hmm. nobody knows about it. That's right. So mm -hmm. it just, to me, it kind of takes away from that point. Right. Well, remember that here in Ecclesiastes, like the book of Proverbs, it's dealing with general truths. It doesn't cover 100% of every single case. And so it's not saying that a righteous person won't be forgotten. In fact, in chapter 9, we're going to come to a point where Solomon is going to then show how even the righteous can be forgotten. And so that will be covered later. Okay? Yes? Forgotten by men, but always remembered by God. Right. Remembered by God. All right? Look at verse 11. This has always struck me. And in our day and age, I think, uh, you know, when it takes years for a person to be tried for a crime, and by the time he or she is tried for the crime, half the witnesses have forgotten half their lives, much less what happened on the day the crime took place. And we still expect our justice system to bring forth perfect justice. And uh, this says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. In other words... It's not a deterrent to crime to delay judgment. The deterrent to crime comes when judgment is taken care of swiftly. That if the person is innocent, they're immediately declared innocent, proven innocent, and released. And if they are guilty, that they are immediately proven guilty, declared guilty, and the sentence executed instead of waiting years and years and years. Because otherwise persons say, ah, oh, I can commit this crime. So-and-so did the same crime. They spent five years in the legal system before being tried. They finally came to trial, and half the witnesses were dead, and they got released on a technicality. So I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to go ahead and commit the crime. Right? Not just if you're rich. It can be very poor, too. Just play the system, right? Okay? So this, this is the type of thing, and Solomon saw it, too. We're not looking at something new. All right? We sometimes think, oh, this is just a modern uh, thing that's occurring. No, this is the history of mankind from the time of Solomon, uh, 1,000 B.C. till today, 3,000 years of history. It's been the same all along. What you're saying is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Ecclesiastes and James both said those things. All right, why is it that we do not change this? Anyone got an idea? Why don't we change that? Creatures of habit, what else? Why can't we change it? Okay, we're evil, right? It's a fallen world. A fallen world will remain a fallen world. A fallen world will remain imperfect. A fallen world will remain frustrated. A fallen world will not do things right all the time. All right, we can go out there with the full intentions of getting something corrected and getting it done. And in some rare instances, it might actually occur. All right? But in the majority of instances, it's not going to happen. And even if you get something changed to make it right, we don't know if the next generation will turn it around. Or administration. Or administration. All right? Right? Yes, Jeremiah said that. And that's exactly why these things happen, isn't it? Now look at verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. He's been saying, I see, I see, I see. And all of a sudden he says, I know, I know. Why? How does Solomon know what he knows in verse 12? Anyone? I heard someone. Anna. Okay, what else? Experience, possibly. Butch? Okay, Solomon knows a lot. He knows what's been taught. He knows the law. Okay. Any other reason why he might say, I know, instead of just I see? Because he knows God's in control. How does he know God's in control? You're on the right track. Pardon? He has hope. How does he have hope? Where is his hope based? Butch? Is it a statement of faith? A statement of faith. What does he have faith in? God's sovereignty. How does he know God's sovereignty? <laughs> Linda does not know when this misery is going to end. The weight of the heaviness of her trouble is upon her. <laughs> yes. Okay, part of it has been placed in us. There is an interior knowledge. Remember, he put eternity in the hearts of man, Ecclesiastes 3.11. But what else? Yes. Okay, God's proven himself faithful and true. How do we know that, Pauline? There we go, finally. <laughs> the scriptures. What scriptures did Solomon have? Not all the Old Testament, okay. What scriptures did he have? All of the books of Moses, five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. What else? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Job, many of the Psalms because his father, David, wrote many of them, right? He himself had penned what? Proverbs, the Song of Solomon. How does he know this? The same as we know something that's spiritual or religious or doctrinal. From the scriptures, God has given revelation. And so he knows this. From studying scriptures, he knows what he says here. 
He says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear him openly. Read the book of Deuteronomy sometime. You can't, you can't ignore it. Look at the first few chapters of the book of Proverbs, where the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Look at the book of Psalms and see where the fear of God is talked about there. And it's very clear as we go through the scriptures, we find out immediately. I mean, look at 1 Samuel even, where we have a history of David. And look at the, the, the statement Samuel makes about the fear of God. Solomon knew this because there is scripture, God's word, upon which he may base this knowledge. That's the main thing. Yes, that knowledge can be confirmed by all the different things that you already mentioned. But there's the primary source. The same is for us. We know it because God said it. An evil person's major problem consists of the lack of any fear of God, according to verse 13. It will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. And what does this lengthen like a shadow mean? Watch. Now, lately we've had cloudy days, but when the sun finally comes back out again, go outside about an hour before sunset and mark your shadow, the length of it. Go out another 15 minutes later, mark it again. Go out a half hour later, mark it again. 45 minutes later, mark it again. An hour later, mark it again. What happens to that shadow? It lengthens. It lengthens. And so the concept here is that there, when it says here, uh, he will not lengthen his days like a shadow. It's the idea he will not extend his days. The wicked cannot, in their own accord, extend their days, lengthen their life. Because he does not fear God. He is not in control of how long he lives. And that's true of the wicked, and it's true of the righteous as well. Now, the, a parallel text here is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13 through 43. And I'll just have you turn there. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 43. And notice these words, Malachi 3, 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain. Notice that? It is vain, futile to serve God. And what profit is it? What advantage? Does this sound like the book of Ecclesiastes? Is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Isn't the house of mourning better than the house of feasting? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. They appear to have the advantage. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Notice those who fear are remembered by God. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice three things. First of all, the futility of serving God 
when the wicked appear to prosper. That's a message also in Ecclesiastes. The contrast between those who fear God and those who do not. And future judgment will come. Solomon has already mentioned this back in chapter 5, but he's going to mention it again yet in the future in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, in verse 14, there's the introduction of the summary verse for chapter 8. He says, There is futility which is done on the earth, that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. In other words, some righteous seem to be treated as though they are wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. Now, we dealt with this back in chapter 7 as well. It's the same topic, the seeming inequity of life. But notice how verse 15 goes on, because here he brings us back to an enjoyment passage and saying, in the light of all this, what are we to do? So I commended pleasure. Now, the word for commend here is a very strong word. It's the idea of a strong recommendation. And Solomon here isn't saying that enjoyment of life is to be used as an anesthetic to deaden the pain of real life and its problems. He's not saying that at all. His point is that we ought not waste what God has given. And we should not try to replace the authority of our creator. We should not try to usurp that authority. We should do what he commands. So I commended pleasure for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. In other words, what Solomon is saying here is we ought not to fret over our life's brevity. We ought not to fret over the seeming unfairness and inequities of life. We ought to uh, pursue those things which God has given as gifts to us. Because if we fret, we're only going to end up with no joy, no peace, no rest, and no solution to the problems. What does fretting over inequities and injustices and inabilities say about one's relationship to their creator? No trust. No trust. We're saying to God, I know better how things ought to be than you do. When we start the blame game by blaming God. Now, we're going to have to close here, but this is what I want you to do is, is you've got your notes there on page 64. Read Matthew 6, 25 to 34, because it is astounding here how that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gives the same teaching that Solomon gives here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, including enjoying life. All right? Watch that very carefully. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Lord Jesus Christ teaching and preaching. And he's summarizing here exactly what Solomon is saying, but in much greater clarity because he's speaking as God, he's speaking as the Son of God, and he's giving updated revelation to us. And Solomon's summary in verses 16 to 17 is that the work of God is the observation that he has looked at. He sees God's work. It's a, another mention of God's work that we saw back in, in chapter 7. And that we must understand that we cannot discover all of God's work under the sun. Notice how that this chapter began with a wise man in verse 1 who knows the interpretation of a matter to the wise man in verse 17 at the end 
who should say, I know, yet still he cannot discover the solution. What a change from a wise man who can interpret a matter to a wise man who says, well, I know, I know, but still does not have the answer. In other words, our knowledge does not give us that. Read 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 25 on this same issue because it talks about the same thing. So we, we conclude this way. No one can turn to the Redeemer until they first recognize their own inability to do anything for themselves. That's the first thing. That's what Solomon's doing here in chapter 8. Before we can turn to our Creator and to our Redeemer, we must first realize and accept the fact we cannot do it ourselves. And lastly, as we move on from here to the final chapters, including chapter 9 next week, we pick up the message of 8, 16 to 17, and Solomon is going to continue to direct us toward God, the maker and creator. And he's going to do it by continually reminding us that we are not God, and we are not in control. Therefore, we must turn to him who is. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for everything that you've given to us. We thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes. We pray that we might listen carefully to its message, that we might realize that we are fallen sinners, even though saved by grace, and therefore we are not perfect. And even as believers, we must depend upon you. Help us to have a humility in regard to that. Help us to learn to trust you, even when our troubles are heavy upon us. For this is part of the lesson that you would have us to learn from this book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.